All right, an extended quote. It's too bad that much of the church has lost this vision of God or Christ as the warrior who fights for his people. Too many of us regard this conception as substandard, by which we mean it does not fit our sentimental 20th century, it was written a little while ago, graven images of what God ought to be like. The imagery seems too violent, and we do the same for the Lord Jesus, with perhaps not a little help from church school materials. The popular image of Jesus is that he is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. Such a Jesus can hardly steal, S-T-E-E-L, steal the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. We need to learn the catechism of Psalm 24. Question, who is the king of glory? Answer, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. We must catch the vision of the faithful and true sitting on the white horse, the one who judges and makes war in righteousness, Revelation chapter 19. No mild God or soft Jesus can give his people hope. It is only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us and sometimes without us that we have hope of triumphing in the muck of life. I've quoted from Ralph Davis a number of times, and now one more time. That is said plainly, it is a punch in the gut. Uh, for the record, I use hand cream. It's just an analogy, that's all is there. But it's helpful, I think. It's challenging. Joshua, Joshua, with all of the promises that are there, all of the cairns that are built there, the covenants, the warfare, the victories that we see, is a book which the Spirit of God would use to steal our souls. To borrow the phrase that Davis used in that section that I just read, warriors need to be hardened. You can't be soft and be a warrior. You need to be hardened through training and through battle, whether we're talking about physical or whether you're talking about spiritual warfare. Christian warriors are hardened for battle. As we see, our Lord is the warrior and Christ is victorious. Today I want us to look at uh, kind of this section of scripture, 10, 11, not so much 12, but 10, 11, and the idea at least of 12, with the headings of warfare, defeat, and victory. And as I prayed, I trust that by now, and I think I've said it enough in this series, that we all appreciate the distinctions that exist between the warfare that Israel is called to wage here and the warfare that we are called to wage. In case you don't, I'm going to preach more on that next week. We'll go into that a little bit more uh, next week. But keeping those things in mind, I still think that structure is helpful for us and helpful for the way, one of the ways at least, that we can view this world. So 
I want to begin with thinking about warfare and make a couple of observations from the texts that are before us. The first observation is this. Israel is fighting and Israel needs to fight. We are now in a more normative situation for the people of God. Here's what I mean by that. You'll recall, and we made reference to this especially a, a few weeks ago talking about Jericho, you'll recall that I, I took us back to the Red Sea and when Israel was confronted by the Egyptians at the Red Sea and God instructed them basically to be still. There's nothing that you need to do. You just need to be silent because I am going to fight for you. But we're not at the Red Sea right now and we're not at Jericho where the command was to march around the city, the city to blow the horns, to shout and God would give them the victory. This is a more normative situation. This is warfare. And as we saw from the passages that I read for us, it involves alliances and mighty men and tactics and night marches and swords and horses and chariots. Verse 11, four, I didn't read that one, but it's, it, it's a description of the armies that are in northern Canaan coming against them. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together to fight against Israel. It is a time to fight. I like the call. It sounds really good in, uh, I'm sure it did in Hebrew. It sounds really good to us. We can make sense of it. That the Gibeonites give to the Israelites. Chapter 10, verse 6. Do not relax. Don't relax right now. We need your help. We need you to fight. To take up arms on our behalf. There is a time for war and there is a time for peace. And when it is the time for war, well then, do not relax. So Israel is fighting. A second observation regarding warfare in this passage is that this is not a quick war. It did not take place overnight. We can sometimes read the scriptures, and this is an example of exactly what I'm going to talk about here. We can read the scriptures, and it seems to us that events happen just immediately. One thing happens, and then the next thing happens, and it's the next day. And sometimes years are summarized in a few verses, and that is the case that is in the passage before us. Uh, prolonged days, notwithstanding, this was a protracted war that went on. And we get the our, our author kind of reminds us just to say, hey, this didn't happen overnight. In verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all of those kings. Now, as I said, next week we're going to talk a little bit more about our warfare and our responsibility within a long, ongoing battle. But at least we get the sense of it here. Our third warfare point that I want to make for us, so Israel is fighting, it's a protracted War. The third warfare point that I want to make for us is that Israel is here clearly not fighting alone. God is on their side. Psalm 124, we use it often as a call to worship. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, 
when the enemies, when the people rose up against us, then we would have been destroyed. We would have been scattered. The Lord was on Israel's side. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Now, earlier in Joshua chapter 5, we saw the captain of the host, the heavenly host, address Joshua when Joshua, you remember, said, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, the captain of the heavenly host needs to make clear who's who in this battle. And so he doesn't allow Joshua the immediate comfort of saying, hey, I'm with you, I'm on your side. He forces Joshua to have the right perspective that God is, or to God belongs all of these things. But make no mistake, once that is done, once Joshua understands that he is under the captain of the host, the Lord is a warrior, and the Lord fights for his people against their enemies and against his enemies. And God uses this. God uses this knowledge of the fact that he is fighting on your behalf as a way to steal the soul of warriors. Uh, chapter 11, verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. God uses it as encouragement to his people. They're going to have to fight, but he says to him, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to give them into your hands. Now, God's participation in the warfare here takes various forms. It has various manifestations, not only here in Joshua, but throughout the scriptures. But in particular, a couple of things that we can note, and one that we have to spend some time on here for a moment. In chapter 10, verse 10, we see that the Lord throws the enemies into a panic. And he throws the enemies into a panic, and in conjunction with that, there is apparently a great storm in which significant hailstones are thrown from God on the enemies, more killed by the hailstones than by the swords of the Israelites. The second way that we see the Lord working in this passage is by answering the prayer, the plea of Joshua by prolonging the day of battle. And we saw that, or we heard that read for us in Joshua chapter 10. This uh, event is described for us by the author of Joshua by quoting the book of Joshar. Now, this is a now non-existent book. We don't have this book, but it is apparently, it is referenced in other places. It is apparently a collection of odes, of stories, of the heroes of the Israelite faith and of various kings. And our author uses the words of that book to provide us with the details of this story. Now, although this is gonna be a little bit extended, I've gotta take a little bit of a parenthesis here in the middle of this sermon to comment on this particular way that God intervenes in this situation because of the magnitude of what is described here and the way it is described for us of how God listened to Joshua in this case. I'm going to discuss this briefly for us right now. 
Uh, if you want to talk about it more, we can. I can also point you to some places that you can read for more of this. All right, so we have in verse 12, chapter 10, a command or a prayer for the sun to stand still. Sun, stand still at Gibeon. And we've got a double declaration in verse 13 that it did so. And the sun stood still. And a little bit further down in verse 13, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven. The question becomes, okay, all right, we understand that God is uh, working here. What exactly took place? How are we to make sense of what is before us here? So what do you do with this? First of all, here's a good place for us to start. It is not hard for our omnipotent God who spoke the cosmos, the universe, into existence to do all that would be needed to accomplish this miracle. That is not hard for God to do. But still, the question becomes, given the fact that this is not normally the way that even miracles are done on a scale that stops the cosmos, we, we have, people ask questions about it. And they ask questions about it on the level of the text itself, asking what happened. Let me give you some examples of how evangelical interpreters of the scriptures handle or try to handle what's going on in this passage, what exactly happened. Some look at this passage and say that what is being described here is figurative, that there is language in scripture such as the trees clapping their hands. You saw it in the call to worship this morning with the forests singing. There's language in scripture that is using figures and using metaphors to describe reality for us. Now again, these are people who uphold the authority of the Bible and the omnipotence of God. But essentially what they're saying in this passage is that what is being described is a process that took a long time. Or at least a way of saying it seemed like the day would never end. It just went on and on is one way that people handle this. Some look at this passage, this is another example, and say that this is kind of a prayer for an astrological kind of omen that would frighten the Canaanites. So Joshua is praying for some kind of a sign in the sky that would strike fear into the hearts of the Canaanites who looked at astrology as good or bad omens for how a victory or how a battle would go for them. So some look at it that way. Some recognize that the word that is translated sun be still here, that word still, actually has a range of meaning. That word can mean uh, to silence, to make something dumb, unable to speak, or to darken. In this case, some people look at this passage and say, what's being prayed for here is not actually for an extension of daylight, but for a blocking of the sun that would have perhaps struck fear into the hearts of the enemy and enabled without the heat of the sun for Israel to continue to pursue the enemy. Thus, it would be united with the hailstorm that was there. Okay, so a storm that blocks out the sun. That, just, just to give, for example, how many times I quoted from Ralph Davis, that's the view that Ralph Davis takes of this passage, based on the literary nature of the passage, not 
the idea somehow that it would be impossible for God to work otherwise. Still, others look at this as a literal described miracle that is on a grand scale that is basically the elongation, the prolonging of a day, the prolonging of daylight so that Israel could continue this warfare. I will tell you, though I'm not 100% convinced, I'm inclined towards the latter of those. I'm inclined towards the idea that something dramatic, something miraculous is happening here that protracts the day, that elongates the day. But even so, we've got a problem. We've got a problem because the Bible says the sun stood still and the sun didn't stand still. Okay, the Bible says it that way, but the sun didn't stand still because as we know, at least relative to the earth and at least relative to the rotation of the earth, the sun isn't the thing that's moving. The earth is rotating. The sun isn't going around the earth. And there's an important point here. It may seem unimportant, but I think it's really important. And frankly, I, honestly, young people of the church, this is really important for you to understand this and to hear this and to, to allow this to settle in a little bit. How do you understand scripture? How do you apply scripture? What sense are you to make of a passage like this? And here, here's the principle. Don't push observational language and observational descriptions to the point of having to conform them to scientific fact. This is what we call phenomenological language. It is describing the event in the way that it looked. It is not an attempt to make a scientific point. From this text, you should not argue that see, everyone else is wrong, the sun is rotating around the earth. I don't care what anyone else says because the Bible says it is the sun that stood still. It doesn't say it is the earth that stopped rotating. In no way is this meant to deny the miraculous hand of an omnipotent God. I think something extraordinary took place on this day. I think something miraculous took place on these days. This is not to deny the reliability of words. It is, however, important to say, don't overread observational language and press it to conform to modern science. Okay, I'm sorry we had to do that extended section. We can talk more about it sometime if you'd like, but we had to do that extended section because that's a pretty big point. The point here though, Israel is fighting, it was protracted warfare but God is the one who is also fighting. And God is encouraging by the, them by the fact that he is fighting. He is in the warfare. Now, before we move from warfare to victory, we need to say here something about the second point, which is defeat. Because God doesn't only bring victory here to his people. He defeats his enemies. Everybody's not a winner, Right? This is like, not, you don't get an award for participation here, and everybody's a winner in the book of Joshua. Everybody is not a winner in the book of Joshua. I didn't read it for us, don't read it now. Look at chapter 12. There are two winners in chapter 12, Moses and Joshua. Everybody else who's listed there, and there's a lot of them, are the defeated. They are the conquered by Moses and by Joshua. 
God defeats his enemies by our sinful nature. We were all his enemies. To quote a friend of mine, God defeats his enemies in one of two ways. He defeats them either by making them his friends or by, in this life and in the next, destroying them, consigning them to eternal destruction. There is a particularly, I think, well, there are a number of them, but there's a particularly brutal image of the defeat that is contained in the middle of chapter 10. Let me just read it for you. It's verse 24 of chapter 10. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, they had been locked in a cave. Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. They came near and put their feet on their necks. It's brutal. It's a picture of defeat. And we listen to that and we think, whoa, that is brutal. It is. And it's consistent. It's consistent with Genesis chapter 3, where the one who is promised will crush Satan's head. It's consistent with Psalm 8 and Hebrews chapter 2, where all things will be put under the feet of the man Christ Jesus and then of our feet. We sang that in a hymn, if you didn't realize it a little while ago. It's consistent with Psalm 110 and Hebrews 10, that I will make your enemies your footstool. And Paul gives this promise to the church in Rome. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. To those of you who might be here today and who do not acknowledge Christ as your captain, you've not bowed in worship and adoration to the king of love, be warned of his wrath. In that day, you do not want to be found his enemy. Church of God, we need to hear this. The false idea that God saves everyone and would never send anyone to hell, that God would never judge so harshly, is a lie from the father of lies. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Universalism is incompatible with the word of God. No matter how you try and twist it, how you try and wring this word, universalism is incompatible with it. It is a lie regardless of how comforting we might find it to be, regardless of how much we'd like to create God in our image. God was patient with the Canaanites. He was patient with the Canaanites for 400 years, and now, in a Pharaoh-like way, he is hardening their hearts. The Gibeonites turn. They turn. Why didn't anyone else turn? Why wasn't that their response? Why was their response, let's ally and go out together either against Gibeon or against Israel? 
because God hardened their hearts. Their hearts were hardened, sin for 400 years, and God said, that's it. You are not turning now. I'll pause here for just a second to let that settle in because something in us right now is going, wait, 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 there's got to be an explanation for that. There's got to be a way to understand this. It should scare us to death. That's the bottom line. It should just scare us and say, wait, 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 your ways are not my ways. They're not. They're higher than my ways. I can't conceive of these ways. Just a, just a comparison here for a moment. I've been using the phrase that I borrowed from Davis because I really like it, stealing the soul, hardening the soul. That's what this warfare needs to do. But, but there's an opposite hardening that goes on, a corresponding hardening. There's a hardening of the hearts of the Canaanites, a hardening of the soul, a hardening of the swords of the Israelites. Go to the prophets. I'll make your forehead like flint because you've got a mighty enemy that you're going up against. God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance and not to foster indolence and indifference. All of the enemies of our Lord, human and other, will be defeated. Death is the last of those enemies, but death itself has already been dealt its death blow in the death and then the resurrection of the Son of Life. Christus, victor. Christ is victorious. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering King. And so our final section then is victory. It's vic this is a, these are chapters of victory. Joshua obeyed the Lord. Joshua did what Moses commanded. Joshua led the people of Israel to victory. Joshua gave the people of Israel a taste of joy, a taste of rest, and of victory. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. He gave it to them for an inheritance, and the land had a rest from war. It was grand, it was good, it was sweet, it was glorious, and it was limited. It was short-term. It was short-lived. It was temporal. It was incomplete. Enemies continued in the land. And there's hints of that throughout these passages that are here. We'll see it more in Scripture to come. None of the Anakim were left in the land, but only in Gaza, Gath, Ashdod. You remember who the Anakim are. They're, they're the ones who have struck fear into the heart of the Israelites. They're the, they're the big guys, frankly. They're the Goliaths of the land. There's only a few of them left, but they're going to be a problem. They're going to be a problem. The victory was sweet. Hebrews 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, wait, Joshua didn't give them rest. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This was good. This was victory. But it's not the final rest. There remains 
a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The battle was not ended by Joshua. We need a better Joshua, a better lamb, better promises, a better victory, a better rest, a more secure inheritance. Jesus did not defeat mere Anakim. He defeated the one who had the power of death. Or to put Jesus' work in terms of the passage today, Jesus engaged in warfare. He engaged against human opposition, against demonic opposition, against satanic temptation. He obeyed the law of God. He engaged in warfare on the cross. Jesus defeated his enemies. He destroyed any of the arguments that were raised up against him in his life. He cast out demon, demons. He rose people from the dead. He himself rose from the dead. He disarmed and triumphed over Satan and his host. Jesus has the victory. He has the victory. Now he sits in the heavenly court, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The good news is that our Savior is willing to share the spoils of the victory. Verse on the front of your bulletin. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Your sharp sword? The gun you bought last week? What is the victory that has overcome the world? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? How to participate in the victory of Jesus Christ? Faith. Faith in the victorious, in the conquering Christ. What are you facing? What's before you right now? What to you seems insurmountable? What are you fearing? Let this blessed assurance control. Let this steal your soul. Our God reigns. Jesus has overcome the world. Christ is victorious.